What is up, podcast listeners? Thank you for giving me a few moments of your day to listen to this podcast. This is the Matt Baxter Show. I'm your host, Matt Baxter, and this podcast is about purpose, passion, and calling. Super stoked to have you as a listener because we're going to dive into some awesome, intense stories about people who are going through this journey of this thing called life, and we're all just figuring this out together. But seriously, you're giving me a little bit of your time, and I want to make sure it's valuable and worthwhile. So have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was getting this podcast off the ground, we first started as the Wedgecast, evolved into the Matt Baxter Show. There was a lot of questions that we had, like, how do I record an episode? How do I get my show in all the different places like Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, Zencaster, all these different places. And yet it just seemed very, very complicated. But the simple thing for us as we began to navigate the waters is the answer to every single one of these questions, questions excuse me, was really simple. It's Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. Yeah, free. And it's ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise in your podcast. That means you can get paid podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, making money. Okay, it's sweet. It's easy. It's not a big cheap plug on an ad, but it's just simple and easy to use. So for us, it's one of the best parts about it is we can do it entirely remote or in studio. So you can record, you've got that really, really high, you know, high in the sky person that you're going to have as a guest on your podcast. You got to do it remote. Anchor is easy to use. You got people who are willing to come to your studio, your house, your office, wherever you're recording it. Boom. Anchor. Love it. Simple, easy, simple and easy to use. So if you ever want to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. Join me in the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. Can't wait to hear your podcast. What's up, podcast listeners? I am here on another fantastic episode with a gentleman by the name of Ron Baker. Ron Baker is a California man. He is the radio talk show host at the Soul of Enterprise, where they just talk about everything and anything under the sun. They're not afraid to get a little controversial and have some fun on it. He also um, is the founder of Verisage Institute, which is basically a think tank where people come, share ideas, chalk it up, learn from each other, and just make ideas and take them to market. So I had an absolute blast of a time recording with him. He's a fantastic human being, just had so much fun, and I uh, cannot wait for people to get a chance to dive into this episode. So Ron, thanks a ton for being a guest on the show. Ron, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Uh, Thrilled to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. I feel like this whole time I'm going to be judged because you have your own talk show. And so I'm going to be really, really thoughtfully uh, picked apart about the questions I ask. So the story better be good, right? No, I doubt that. It's <laughs> just fun to have conversations like this, especially now. Oh, yeah. There's a, we, we got a lot of fun stuff to talk about. But I'd love to, if, you, if you're willing, just to share a little, just to hear a little bit about your, your background, your life story. You're, cut, you're recording from a pretty cool place. So, you know, share that with the world as well, too. But we'd just love to hear your life story. Wow, my bio so bores me, but I'll give you the, uh, the the edited version. I grew up in Santa Rosa, California. I live in Petaluma, so that's Sonoma County for those people that are into wine. So Napa would be in my backyard. And uh, I figured out I wanted to be a CPA when I was 15 years old. 
And when I got into high school, had a really good high, uh, high school accounting teacher. He had a two-year program. So I did that. In the third year, I was his teaching assistant. And he would bring in CPAs and have them talk to the class. And I'd get to ask him all sorts of questions. My dad was a barber. He had lots of CPA clients. And as they were getting their hair cut, I pulled up a stool, sat in front of them and pumped them full of questions. Uh, and so I had a really clear path from high school about what it took to become a CPA, what schools, what the test was like, all of that type of thing. And I actually started doing accounting work and tax work in high school. Um, did my dad's books for his business and a bunch of his friends, even defended IRS audits. And of course, went to college, got a degree in accounting, became a CPA, started in the big eight. Uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. I'll stop there. Yeah, I love that. So uh, I wouldn't say... I hope this is not offensive. There's not a, it's a select breed of people who really get fired up about accounting. Yes, and, it is. Yes. Bob and, Newhart, uh, <laughs> Bob Newhart, who was a CPA used to love to say, no kid plays accountant. You know, you play fireman, you play cop, but you don't play accountant. Exactly. That's where I was going with it. So, which, which is wonderful. You've got your passion. Uh, maybe we should talk about, we need some help with our books, but you know, what was it as, as a young kid? What was like, what was the excitement, the, 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 the fire, because obviously you're doing it in high school. So that was, you know, what was the excitement behind accounting for you? It was helping people. I mean, take, you know, helping them do their taxes, um, you know, giving them, delivering great news. And then of course, when you start to practice, you got it, you realize, oh, geez, I'm also got to deliver bad news, um, helping them through IRS audits, just helping people, helping businesses. I've always, you know, because my dad was a barber, I, was taught entrepreneurialism from the inside of the barber chair. And it was always exciting to be able to advise uh, small businesses. And just because I've always admired business people, entrepreneurs, um, and then that passion carried over into college. But then also in college, I also got very passionate about economics and realized that nah, you probably can't make a real good living at this unless you go into academia, which I didn't want to want to do. So I stuck with accounting just because of the career prospects. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say in high school and all through college, when I was doing accounting and tax work, I put myself through college uh, on doing that. And it was good money. I have to say the money was a big part of it. I made really, really good money in high school and college doing this type of work. Did you, uh, was, was predominantly the, the joy and the excitement for it, uh, working with small companies you obviously did some tax audits and, and, or defended some IRS stuff. Was that almost predominantly with smaller companies? Or all, did you small, ever step okay. all small companies. Yep. And then even when I went into a big eight accounting firm, I chose, I chose Pete Mark Mitchell at the time, which is now KPMG because they brought me into what they called their private business advisory services, where I got to work on the smaller privately held companies. So, you know, I wouldn't get stuck on like, you know, doing an audit for Wells Fargo forever. I, I got to work with a lot of smaller privately held companies and got a more rounded, um, you know, just on the job training because I got to do audit tax and consulting work. Did you, so we, we work with a, for my, my, I've got a tech startup and, and for our company, we work with a local accounting firm and it's cool because the um, the owner of the accounting firm is like uh, an equity holder of like 20 to 25 different companies. And he decided to start an accounting firm 
to basically help his different companies. And so that's always stuck with me because it was like, man, what a fascinating place as an accountant to be able to see so many different businesses. Sure, the number crunching can get a, a touch boring or maybe not for maybe you love that. But I always thought it was actually really interesting to think the number and the magnitude of different companies you can look at in any given week or year. I mean, it, it was there did that open your eyes to different business opportunities or different industries or sort of talk me through that a little bit? Absolutely. In fact, I'd say a lot of people go into especially public accounting because of that very reasons, because they can see a wide range of industries, learn about a bunch of different businesses, especially if you know you're going to go out and start a, your own practice, maybe where you start taking equity stakes in some of these entities. Uh, so that was a big part of my education as well, just the curiosity about different businesses. But the ironic thing about that, Matt, is although it feeds your intellectual curiosity to to be in all these different industries and have all these different businesses, it's a really dumb business model for an accounting practice to be so dispersed like that because really the niche is is where it's at. You got to specialize. You got to focus on one particular type of industry or business or demographic. Um, and, and that's where we find the most successful firms, at least from a profitability perspective and the ability to, to help their customers at a deep level. Like I'll give you a quick example. Uh, one of my good friends has a, he's an accountant. He's got a practice that does nothing but dentists. Now this guy, he can do anything that a dentist needs from womb to tomb literally right out of dental school. He can help him start a practice, buy into a practice. He can help him divorce from a practice. He can help him, you know, when they're disabled from a practice. I mean, a, a marital separation. What He's seen it all a million times. And because of that, he has a deep level of expertise. It's like if you went to a heart surgeon and he told you, oh, yeah, Matt, I dabble around with heart surgery on the weekends, but my real job is a you know, general practitioner. My guess is you'd look for a different heart surgeon. Yeah, I'd come drink a glass of wine with you before we even had that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'd probably need a little help getting through that one. <laughs> so so what is, okay, uh, advice to say hypothetically you were, you were talking to a startup business owner who likes to sort of hack things together. Um, what is the bread and butter every business owner should learn up to this level of accounting? And then when does it no longer make sense to keep going and it makes sense to outsource that? Does that oh, make yeah, sense? They're... Like, sort of, what, what's the every every single business owner should you know learn the accounting for dummies? This is a good level, and then after that, you should you should stay away. Yeah, there's definitely diminishing returns with accounting education, and it sets in pretty quick because, quite frankly, accounting financial statements are lagging indicators of your business. I mean, to run your business based on accounting information is the equivalent of timing your cookies with your smoke alarm. Uh, by the time you see it, it's just it's too late to do anything about it. So really good accountants don't look don't just look backwards. They help their customers plan going forward, whether that's budgeting or cash flow. You know, I'd under I'd I'd make sure I understood the the, the cash dynamics of my business. You know, and and modeling that, and because that's really really important. I wouldn't spend any time worrying about cost accounting. Cost accounting is uh, not accurate at all. And it's got all sorts of biases and judgments that just are really ridiculous. Um, so I, I tend to look at cash. And also, I would recommend that all businesses, uh, especially startups, especially in tech, 
especially if they're producing something new, get to understand pricing because I would say 90 to 95% of businesses make the mistake of underpricing. And that takes profit right off the table. Nothing drives profit more than pricing. Nothing, nothing, nothing a business can do. Um, and so you've got to become, it's got to become a core competency in your business. Uh, my VP of business dev is going to, uh, send you probably a thank you note because of saying that out loud. We actually just right before this had a long discussion about understanding our pricing and stuff like that. So fantastic. You bring that up. And actually that that's right where I wanted to take my next question was, so you, you live, you know, close to Silicon Valley, the, you know, the startup hub of the world, what, and obviously you grew up in the area. What have you seen change, uh, I guess one locationally, and that's one part of the conversation that can go one direction, but also like the startup culture, the accounting side of that, you know, what's different, what's the same. I I just love to hear sort of your, your perspective on that whole dynamic and everything going on there. Well, when I left the big eight after two and a half years, and this was back in 87, started my own firm. And I knew I wanted to have my own firm after about a year in the big eight. Um, you know, you could start a firm on a shoestring. You, you bought some office supplies, maybe a computer, some desks, some chairs, copy machine back then, fax machine back then, you know, all that type of stuff. Uh, but it was pretty cheap. Today, the technology has advanced so much and with cloud, it's so much easier. And one of the things that's changed, I, I see these young kids and they're launching their own practice. Maybe they're not going through the big eight ritual like I did, and they're just coming out maybe working for a smaller or regional firm, deciding that's not for them, and then they start their own firm, but then they also reinvent the business model. They do it 100% virtually. They do it without you know billing by the hour. They do it without tracking everybody's time in six-minute increments. Uh, so I've seen a lot of innovation coming from the smaller firms, and, and those are really the hotbeds of innovation. That's where new ideas are tried out. You know, revolutions happen from the bottom up, not the top down. So that's what really excites me about the the small business and startup culture in general. So that's where you see the innovation. You uh, you're pretty involved with a think tank, correct? (laughs) Yes, I started a think tank. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, precisely because I didn't want to start a consulting firm. I, I just wanted to work and be around really, really smart people. And that was the impetus to do that. I heard, uh, I listened to one of your opening keynote talks. And one of the things you said was, you know, the, the, the old business additive, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And then you proceeded to say, well, all of you found a way to be in the wrong room. So I like that a lot. That's <laughs> that was awesome. So, so, so question number one to the dummies out there, meaning me, uh, what, what actually is a think tank? Like what, what is, what does that really mean? Um, and I guess without going into true detail, like how does a think tank sustain itself financially? That's your accounting side, but then I've got a lot more directions I want to go with that, but maybe can you, can you start from like the, the think tank for dummies concept? Yeah. I've, I've always been a big fan of think tanks. So I've members of many different think tanks through college and the Cato Institute, the American enterprise Institute, Brookings Institute, left and right of the political spectrum. Just always been very impressed. I, I really do think, especially in the 80s and the 90s, 
that the think tanks supplanted the universities as the the brokers of ideas. I've always been very passionate and interested in ideas. And that's what the think tanks do. They promulgate ideas. They they push out ideas that they believe in and that they're passionate about. And, you know, to put it crassly, they sell those ideas or they market those ideas. And that's what I wanted to do with my idea to get rid of hourly billing and the timesheet in the professional services world. And I thought, what better to do that than a think tank? Because a think tank attracts people that are like-minded. Not that they think the same. It's not a group think thing. There's major, major disagreements within our think tank. But we do share a set of ideals and, and ideas uh, that we promulgate and we push out into the world and we've made a difference and that's exciting. And I, you can do that with a not for, with a for-profit business, like a consulting firm. I mean, McKinsey's had a profound impact on, on companies around the world, but I just thought the think tank was a better model because it wasn't, it didn't tie people financially. It just tied them ideologically. So I have to ask one, uh, one, maybe more dark sided question. Uh, how does, how do you prevent in a think tank of a bunch of people who are motivated to have new ideas, they discuss them, and then they're obviously also motivated to go start things or, or take an idea to life. How do you prevent that, like the, the, the just stealing each other's good idea culture and make it like, how do you encourage it to be an open discussion? We help you with this, but that's your sort of thing. How does that like not have to be talked about all the time? How does that all work? Yeah, this this I'm so glad you brought this up because this was another part of the major motivation. Uh, Verisage is is the Linux model; it's open source, whereas you know Microsoft everything's copyrighted and patented and IP protection and attorneys and blah blah blah. I don't believe in that. One of the great things about a think tank is they put their ideas out there and they let others challenge them. They let others prod them and and point out the weaknesses or the anomalies. And that's how these ideas improve. So my personal philosophy, Matt, on my intellectual capital is quite frankly to give it away. Because if I give it away, I have to replenish it. And to replenish it, that's what keeps me on the cutting edge. And if I ever lost that, if I ever started to copyright or, you know, trademark my ideas or my vocabulary, uh, that's a that's a leading indicator that your ideas are old and stale and about to go obsolete. So this is like I I, I am internally and both in and on my facial expression smiling because I have always believed that if you have an idea and you have an idea that is going to help the world be a better place in any magnitude of different ways, share that idea. And if at worst case, somebody steals it, the world became a better place. And yes, you don't, you know, you want to be the one to take a product to market and see the success of that. But like, if you truly foundationally believe your idea is good and going to help the world, keeping it buried under NDA or keeping it, and I'm not saying there's not time to be legally protected because there is, but I I am fully in agreement that ideas are meant to be shared and like most people are not maliciously looking to, to, to take it and steal it or run with it or anything like that. So I think you and I completely align with that. So I, I love that. You know, I forget who said it, but some wag said uh, when he was asked, aren't you worried about people stealing your ideas? And he said, Psh, hell no. He said, if your ideas are really good, you're going to have to ram them down people's throats. And I have found that to be true. I mean, 
we are our think tank i think can de- declare victory within the last couple of years against the billable hour and professional services of all types law firms accounting firms advertising agencies it firms consultants that used to bill by the hour we've put it on on trial and we gave it the death sentence and the verdict is in it's guilty nobody defends it anymore and we won that intellectual war and but boy i'll tell you it was a massive fight we obviously had great ideas, but the resistance was unbelievably high. It took over two decades. Um, and, and sometimes it was really, you know, why am I doing this? Why do I keep slamming my head into the wall? So I, I just think that if you've got a great idea, like you say, that can improve the world, share it. Ideas like music, like knowledge, they're non-rival assets. If I give you the, the tie off my shirt, now you have it and I don't. But if I give you an idea, if I give you knowledge, now we both have it, we can tweak it, we can improve it, and it might go out and, and come back to me it, it, it even better uh, and more you know edified and make the world a better place. And that's what's beautiful about the knowledge economy. It's We can all share these things at once without diminishing it for anybody else. It, it, there's no physical limitation here. This brings joy to my heart. I'm excited to listen to this over again because I, I agree philosophy-wise completely or philosophically completely. I, I think that's fantastic, and, and I, I wish more people had that same attitude about things because the number – I mean, so a little background for, for, for me. Our startup has been around for five years, and I have told so many people about this, and the number of people willing to help or offer new suggestions or – you know, just provide a, Hey, have you thought about this? Or I would challenge you to do this that just throughout the course of the five years of running this thing has, has foundationally helped the idea grow me as a business person to become better. And so I, I just, I don't know. I, I agree entirely. So thank you for having that same, same logic. That's amazing. <laughs> well, you know, you know, there is, it's interesting, you know, the, the wisdom of crowds idea, right? No, no one of us is smarter than all of us. And I think there's something to that. And there are times that, you want to go out and throw your idea out there and and let people attack it and f- point out all the weaknesses. Um, and there are other times when the lone person, you know, working on his own, coming up with something, um, it, it also makes a contribution. But but once that's done and you throw the idea out there to the world, I mean, the reason you're writing a book or producing a movie is because you you want to you want to have some type of influence. You want to make a movement in people's thinking, their behavior, their level of consciousness about an issue, uh, why wouldn't you want people to uh, be exposed to that? I, you know, I've published five books with John Wiley and Sons, and when Google went to do their Google Books, um, you know, Wiley was one of the publishers, I think, that sued them. And I'd get these emails as an author, well, you can opt in, you can opt out of Google. Now, my books are professional books, they sell for like 80 bucks. And the people would ask me, well, you don't want your books to be able people to get your books for free on Google Books, do you? And I said, heck, yes, I do. Because, in you know, unless you're J.K. Rowling or, or you know, uh, one of the other famous writers, you know, uh, Stephen King, you're not making money on the books. You're making money speaking and consulting. You want to get your ideas out there. And if people are willing to look at your book for free, bless them. Um, and, and I think that's why you see the explosion of podcasts that you see, you know, people are getting their ideas out there and, you know, good, bad or different people, you have to sift through them, but that's, you know, it's not a money-making device so much. It can be, but it, it, it's to really get your ideas out there. 
Yeah, the, the concept of an $80 book versus a $10,000 speaking fee. What a what an interesting bottleneck to think about. Yeah, <laughs> is, I don't is, even want to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That, uh, you don't need to spend a lot of time to understand that math. An accountant doesn't need to do that math. <laughs> right, right. So, so um, what do you think about the idea? And I don't remember where it came from, and I'll have to make an edit in the show notes on this. But somebody once said that you can't be creative or have new ideas when you're stressed. Do you believe that to be true? Yeah, my friend and co-host on the Soul of Enterprise Ed Kless says there's there's a you know uh, what do they call it uh, you know reverse correlation between anxiety and innovativeness, right? Uh, if you're if you're anxious, it's hard to be innovative. Um, I, I I think to a large extent that's true, but I, I don't know. Stress can can be and fear actually are pretty good motivators. You know, when you're writing a book, one of the things that got me to write a book uh, or five books, at least with John Wiley, was the contract. And I had a deadline. I never met a deadline, by the way, on any of my books, but I came close because for a guy who wants to write a book, don't tell me that because then I'll just know. Yeah, it's (laughs) it's brutal because I'll tell you, if you write a book, um, especially if you're not under contract, but even if you are under contract with a, a publisher, you have a deadline. But, you know, on a minute to minute basis. There's nobody hanging over you saying, hey, Ron, how many words did you write today? How many, you know, there's, there's nobody. So it's always easy to get, be diverted, go watch YouTube or something on Netflix or go out for a walk or whatever. Um, It's really hard. You got to really discipline yourself. And I can't believe I had the discipline to do five. I I don't know if I have that same discipline today. I think it it deteriorates with age. Um, So yeah, if you're going to, if you're thinking about writing a book, do it when you're young. What does a standard day look like for you now? Oh, uh, well, with this COVID thing, it's really yeah, interesting. Not, uh, yeah, I'd uh, be thinking about drinking wine the whole time if I was you in that circumstance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I joke with Ed yesterday that I said, this is the worst uh, semester in med school I've ever had. You know, I've, <laughs> I've got immunology, virology, epidemiology, and economics. I'm trying to st- statistics. Uh, but a, a typical day for me, I mean, prior to COVID was I I'd travel a lot. So I do 220 days uh, away from my pillow and uh, be speaking on the road internationally. That would be Australia, Canada, Europe, New Zealand, all over the U.S. Uh, to various groups, not just accounting firms, but law firms and organizations. Um, and, and I really enjoyed that. I didn't enjoy the travel part, you know, the airport, the hassle of that. But I do enjoy flying. I, I love to fly. I think it's really I'm like a little kid when I get on a plane. Um, so and 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 I work virtually for the most part. And of course, now, since there's no more meetings or conferences going on, uh, I'm doing a lot more. And I have been doing this for the last few years anyway, a lot more webinars, uh, more and more education is being done through webinars. And so I'm doing a lot of that. Of course, I'm doing a lot more podcast interviews like this as well, which is always fun. Yeah. And I'm obviously not thankful that uh, COVID has happened, but it's allowed me to land fantastic guests like you who have a little bit more different downtime. So I'm thankful for that. So again, this is. Yeah. Same for me, by the way, we're we're going after some guests that, wow, I can't believe we just, (laughs) we just got this person. So yeah, it's really, it is a great opportunity. So what are, uh, a think tank in COVID, do you, do you see, do you envision, um, sort of the, I don't know, 
uh, desire for new ideas to come out of crisis. And this would be, so I'm a little bit on the younger side. So I obviously 2008 still remember that, but, you know, thinking through this is like a pandemic based crisis. Do you think, uh, do you think we're going to emerge with a lot of new ideas, a lot different creation? I'll give you one example that makes me ask this question. There was a, there was a company out there, large enterprise that wanted to implement uh, Microsoft teams and they had a two year sort of rollout phasing system training, et cetera, et cetera. Well, due to COVID and everything shifting remote, they did it in eight days. And that, yeah, you, you got to laugh at that. And it's like, are you kidding me? And part of me stops and thinks, well, was that the case? Because there was a lot of people with downtime and they just needed to fill that downtime. And that was a reasonably productive thing to do. And then they out of necessity that creates, you know, that forced a hand and then created that to speed up. So what do you think? I'm going to now finally phrase this into a question. What would you sort of envision as some like systemic changes, not health related, but just to enterprise businesses, you know, new ideas coming out of a, a pandemic or a crisis like this? Yeah, no, I think there will be. I think this is a great time to uh, invent and innovate and innovate around the business model. And I think the Microsoft Teams example is really funny because all these jobs that we thought, oh, these could never, you could never do this from home, you could never do this remote, and now you're forced to do it. And guess what? They figure it out. So come to find out, yeah, we can do a lot of this stuff. I think one of the biggest management innovations that's happened in the last 20 or 30 years, and possibly even 70, uh, is this idea of the row, the results-only work environment. Uh, founded by Jody Thompson and Callie Resler. And we just had Jody on our show a few weeks ago for the second time talking about the row. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the COVID is the ultimate stress test on, on on this idea of we really need to judge workers, not based upon whether or not they show up in their cubicle and stay for eight hours and they're the first ones to turn on the lights and the last ones to leave and all of that. It's It's do they get their work done? It, we sh- we need to judge workers based on results, especially knowledge workers. Not you know, work is a place that work is something we do, not a place we go. And if results can be driven, it, you know, I don't care if you're in a Starbucks or at home or following what's left of you know the Grateful Dead around the country. Uh, it, it's results that matter, and that's the idea that they've been pushing. And I think that's a significant management innovation. And I think COVID hopefully will put that front and center and we'll have a more serious transition to those types of work environments. Because all this stuff about a flexible work environment and work-life balance, this is all crap. What workers want is autonomy. They want control over when, where, and how they work. And as long as they get the work done, as long as the customer or the internal customer is happy, whatever, as long as they're getting the results done, it shouldn't matter how long it takes. People say, well, what if they can finish their job in four hours? Well, then bless them. You know, nobody looks at a pile of laundry and says, gee, I really need to put the time in on that. No, you, you want to get it done as soon as possible so you can go do something else that you that is even higher value. So I think the results-only work environment is, is um, one of the things I'm hoping comes out of this. I was on a uh, podcast with uh, Chris Dyer, and they they switched to remote shortly after. He's with uh, uh, I'll include in show notes, but they were talking about how post two thousand eight 
they decided to flip a switch and go entirely remote. And one of the things they learned, and he, he said this on the podcast, was that um, there were some employees that they thought were amazing that actually were terrible. And there were some employees who they thought were terrible who actually were amazing at driving results. And so it's just a fantastic learning curve. And I've actually noticed this in our business. We're really partner driven. So long story short, we're a video interview tool and we add our solution to different applicant tracking systems. So it's similar to like a distribution approach. Mm. And it's been interesting that you know, we have had very results-driven conversations with different CEOs who are stepping into partnership discussions with some of our partners, which is amazing. And that's also showing that, you know, CEOs have some downtime. So now it's time to really, really figure out, you know, the truth behind the results of things. So that's just been really interesting, you know, for, for me to experience as well. And I, I totally can relate to that. I, I see a results black and white. Did you get it done? Can you get it done? Can you do it on time? Can you do it quickly? You know, or what, however long it takes, are, are you checking the boxes of getting your work done? Sort of becoming the attitude of, you know, the, and I think in the best of ways. Sure. Sure. Oh, that's great. So what is ultimately, uh, what is ultimately transitioning a little bit? Um, I know you have a radio show and I obviously want you to share a little bit about that as well too. Um, well, actually, let's do that. Do you mind talking a little bit about sort of your radio show and just everything you've done with that? Yeah, we started, <clears throat> me and Ed Class, who works for Sage, started uh, The Soul of Enterprise. We went on the air first time for Ju on July 4th, 2014. So it's we're coming up on six years this July. We're approaching our 300th episode. And it's really about the knowledge economy. So knowledge workers and intellectual capital, you know, this idea of a rival versus a non-rival asset, like we talked about with ideas and knowledge versus the tie off my shirt. Um, we interview a lot of economists because we both really, really enjoy economics. We're kind of frustrated amateur economists. Uh, so we've had some just incredible economists on people like Thomas Sowell and Deirdre McClowski and Dan Ariely and just, just the whole list, too many to name, uh, a bunch of other authors, professional pricers, and it's just fun. It, it runs live every Friday. It's on Voice America, not Voice of America, but voiceamerica.com, which is like, I think, the Internet's oldest radio network. And um, it's one hour live. And then, of course, it drops to all the podcast places. Uh, but it's just a blast. Uh, it's a labor of love. And I it, it's really put me in touch with some it's just some fantastic people. And you just you, you learn a ton. Like, for instance, tomorrow, we're interviewing the author of the first cell, Dr. Azra Raza. And she's an oncologist. And she's got specific ideas she's trying to promulgate about how cancer research should happen. She thinks what we're doing is completely wasteful in terms of helping patients. And I found her book unbelievably compelling and very difficult to read because there's stories from some of her patients. And uh, just really, really intelligent lady. I was so impressed with her and I was able to reach out with her and get her on. So being able to do that and having a venue to do that uh, and an audience to listen to it is just the ultimate high. What's, uh, what's sort of the... I will say on the economy side, I, I studied uh, not well um, economics when I was an undergrad. And uh, as a startup entrepreneur studying economics, those things don't always go uh, hand in hand. But I actually now go back and I and I, I, I want to spend more time learning and understanding. And I, I, I get your statement of a frustrated uh, economist. So I think that's I love that. What's uh, 
Well, and one other, I just thought about this. Sorry, it was always interesting to me in school, in economy, and, and or you know, different economy classes. Um, it always felt like you were never right. You were always lesser of the wrong. Has you have you found that to be true? <laughs> yeah, there's there's a great joke about the the uh, you know the successful professional going back to college to you know, visit his, uh, his old econ professor and, and uh, sitting on the professor's desk are all the blue books and the tests that he just administered. And the, 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 you know, the old student picks up the test and he looks at it. He goes, professor, this is the same test you gave us 10 years ago. Aren't you worried about the kids just copying it and circulating? He goes, Oh no, he's not worried about that. He said, the test is the same. It's just the answers that are different. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's amazing. It was funny. Uh, well, not that funny, but kind of funny. In January, I don't know, mid-January, I attended this awesome economic talk. And basically, the uh, the, the economists uh, argued and reasoned that um, in the next, you know, we're not going to see a great recession. We're not going to see any form of a recession uh, basically in the next 10 years. Expect in 2030, very deep, deep, deep recession. But between now and then, we might have a little hiccup over the next, I don't know, year or two years, and then the economy is going to come back strong as ever, and why politics actually don't matter as much as people think. And it was this awesome presentation. And then, two weeks later, uh, everything with COVID happened. And then, of course, the you know the, the economist is not wrong because he's like, well, a crisis happens. That's totally different. That's unrelated to the economy. And so it's just like, man, economists are in the perfect place where they're never right and also never wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I the good economists out there are the ones that don't play the prediction game. The prediction game are played by the economists that work for like the investment houses and you know Charles Schwab, so they can impress their customers, right? That we have these really brainy people with all their models. That you know, economists that do predictions were put on the planet to make weather forecasters look good. Um, you can't predict the economy. I mean, the really interesting work going on in economics is explaining human behavior. It's not a predictive science. It's more like seismology with earthquakes. We can't predict them, but we can understand them better. And that's what economics is. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's awesome. So ultimately with the show, what, what's your guys' goal here? What are you, what are you trying to, what are you trying to do? And you mentioned it's, you know, it brings you a lot of joy and it's a lot of fun. You know, what, what is it sort of the, the, the personal, you know, joy that you get out of it and also the, you know, the show in general, what's sort of the, the, the goal uh, of what you can accomplish with it? You know, I'm not sure what it is except just to spread ideas that we like. I mean, we're, we're opinionated. So Ed and I are very opinionated on the show and we don't hide that from our listeners. So I'm sure we turn off some people. We, um, we just want to get our ideas out there, but we want to do it in a thoughtful way with really, really, you know, some people who are smarter than us on the show. And, uh, I don't, beyond that, I don't really have a purpose. I mean, I've always, I've always had the radio bug. I've always wanted to be on terrestrial radio. I would love to have uh, my own radio show, but until then, this is kind of the next best thing. So I'm just enjoying the ride. It's, it's just a blast every week. The fun part about what you're doing now is, you know, obviously having your own radio show would be amazing and, and, you know, consistent, but as you kind of alluded to with writing a book and a contract, uh, it sort of forces the, you know, forces things. Whereas right now you could do it at your own pace, your own time, bring on, you know, there's, there's, there's no restrictions to what you can talk about. So obviously having the more formal thing would be fun, but it's cool that you can literally bring on whatever you want, have all the opinions you want, no pressure of that. 
Right. We we have set up a a Patreon account where we we put bonus shows. So usually after we end our live show, we go right into taping a bonus show. And that's really when we'll just go off the rails and talk about all sorts of stuff, political, whatever. I mean, there's there's nothing politically correct about it. There's, you know, all topics are on the table and, uh, and, and only the hardcore, you know, fans subscribe to that. But that's really fun. And just getting feedback from people. We've got listeners in like 30 or 40 countries uh, that give us feedback from Russia and Denmark. And it's just it's just really exciting to make these connections with people. I've uh, well, The thing that's always amazed me about radio is it's such an intimate medium. Uh, it's the theater of the mind. I mean, I can watch, I can sit in front of a TV and just totally veg out. But you can't do that with radio. Sure, you can multitask. Sure, you can do other things. But you're also listening. Your brain is engaged. And, you know, if you've got a good host, they can draw pictures for you and make things clear. And I, it's just an intimate meeting. It's medium. It's hard to explain, but it, it truly is. You really get to feel like you know somebody. Even if you just listen to the podcast, you, you get to know somebody. And that's a personal connection. That's cool. I like that. So for Ron, what is it ultimately that gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, you know, for the longest time, it was the mission of Verisage to bury the billable hour in the timesheet. And that's what really drove us. And, and there was high demand to hear that message and to, to, to be taught that message and how to do it and all of that. And I would say in the last several years, as you know, my mentor, one of my mentors, Peter Drucker, used to say is, you know, just look out the window, see what's going on. And, and the big thing I see going on out there is the subscription economy. We are moving to a subscription economy and uh, that's going to impact all businesses. You know, in five years, um, you'll probably have the opportunity to subscribe to everything rather than buy it. I mean, right now in five cities, you can subscribe to a Porsche for two or three thousand dollars a month, depending on which option you pick. And they will they they give you, you know, probably seven or eight different models to choose from. You can switch out those models as much as you want. So I can say, hey, uh, yeah, I've got this convertible out here, but I, I need an SUV because I got friends coming. They want to go wine tasting. So Porsche will white glove out an SUV, pick up my convertible, take it away. I'll drive around the SUV maybe for a week or so and say, hey, I want my convertible back. They'll white glove it out for two or three grand. They pay for everything except gas and tolls, everything, insurance, tax, everything. And people say, well, how's that different from buying or a lease? <laughs> it's completely different. Because it's not tied to a car. You can't even buy the car. You're subscribing to Porsche, the company. And that's a direct relationship with the company. And that's why you see a lot of these consumer direct to, or business direct to, you know, con, um, what do they call them? Brands direct to consumer. Uh, you know, Casper Beds and Harry's Razors and all of that kind of stuff. They have direct relationships because their customers subscribe to them. And that's powerful. And we're seeing that more and more. And I think that's just going to sweep um, economies. The, these, these entities have grown 300, uh, 350% for the past seven and a half years. They, they're growing five times faster than the S&P 500. Most unicorns are on a subscription type pricing model. Um, and that's, that's significant. Uh, if you look in the medical sector, you're seeing things like concierge practices 
and direct primary care practices. And those are monthly subscriptions that avoid a lot of the hassle, bureaucracy, and red tape of insurance companies. They, they were doing telemedicine long before it became vogue now with COVID. You could email your doctor, text your doctor. Um, these, are, these are massive, massive um, economic trends that just, we don't see them slowing down at all. We only see them accelerating. In fact, during this COVID uh, crisis, the only businesses that are completely resilient and the ones that are still out there growing are subscription businesses. Uh, and that's fascinating to me. I love that. And uh, that also makes me, you know, as a business owner and, and sort of vamping up my career, be thinking through the different models of, hey, that's the way things are priced now, but that's not how they're going to be priced. That's the way, you know, different direction. I just find that I, I think that's ultimately fascinating. Also, you know, back to the sort of consumer based behavior behind economics, um, you know, your, your attitude of people saying that they want to own a car versus the concept of it all being taken care of, drop in. And so just like thinking through the behavior of, hey, do you want to, do people care if they actually own the vehicle or do they care if you just see them owning the vehicle sort of thing? And <laughs> or just driving put, it, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so I, I, I would be fascinated to, you know, see some of that stuff. So that's, that's amazing. Um, well, Ron, is there anything else you want to leave the audience with? Obviously, I want to give you a chance if there's any, and we'll obviously include any social handles as well, too. But um, is there anywhere, A, like you want people to go direct? I know you've got a lot of books out there, so we can, you know, post notes on that, too. Um, and then ultimately, is there anything else you want to share with, you know, leave or share with the audience? Well, thanks, Matt. Uh, no, other other than if you're interested, if you're a professional firm uh, of any stripe, you can go to verisage.com. That's the think tank, and you can see lots of, um, papers and resources and all sorts of case studies uh, on there. I do have seven books out there. My latest is the the Soul of Enterprise, uh, which is kind of a, a a recap of like four or five different shows that Ed and I did with with a lot of supplemental material thrown in to learn about the show or listen to all of our three hundred prior shows. You can go to the Soul of website. Uh, and you can subscribe to the Soul of Enterprise on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And then, of course, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm also one of the LinkedIn influencer bloggers. So you can follow me there. And I've got articles up there on all these topics. And like I'll post this interview, Matt, up there so my followers can uh, hear all the interviews that I've done over time. So, yeah, um, I'm pretty easy to find on social media, too. I'm Ronald, at Ronald Baker at Twitter. So, I'm all over the place. <laughs> Love that. Well, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Um, and obviously, I, I feel like there's going to be many, many more conversations to come. So thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt.